Welcome to Happy Times and Places, a positively inclined Doctor Who episode commentary podcast with me, Toby Haydock. We're slightly tweaking the format this week. We're going to hear from our special guest after we've watched the episode. He, by the way, is Richard Marson former contributor to Doctor Who magazine. He's written books about Verity Lambert and John Nathan Turner and was also once the editor of Blue Peter. I'm going to be interviewing him post-show to see what it is that he likes about this week's episode, which is the conclusion, part four, of his chosen story, Terror of the Autons. Well... I've just called simply to say hello, Doctor. Let's not leave him hanging on the telephone for any longer than he needs to be. So we're going to fire up Terror of the Autons, episode four, in three, two, one, play. So yeah, the black and white print of this I saw was taped off air from Australia. And I got my early bootlegs. Don't arrest me. <laughs> Is there a statute of limitations? They weren't available on video. I got them from a comic shop, now long closed down in Wolverhampton, called The Chase. Uh, the, the, the Place. <laughs> it's a Freudian slip. It's named after a Doctor Who story. And you take in two videotapes and you get one back with episodes on. So you paid in kind. You paid in videotapes. Uh, and I got mine from a cash and carry. They were called Yashima. Uh, and they were really cheap, and uh, he much preferred it when I upgraded to Scotch when uh, it was revealed that Yashima weren't quite so good quality. But Terror of the Autons was the first Pertwee I got in black and white. Uh, It's, um, yeah, again, this is something I'd imagined being sort of dark and terrifying, the strangling cable, and and it is slightly more comical, isn't it, than... than, uh, uh, I I think I'd I'd envisaged, but I think if you because because if you'd done all of this without a twinkle and a sense of humour, oh Brigadier, that that, but is but you see, he's, is he joking? He's not joking. The Brigadier wasn't joking then. Uh, he played it dead straight, which Nicholas Court is very good at doing, but it means the joke. Oh yeah, I don't know. Um. But if if it wasn't played with a twinkle, and if it wasn't slightly zany, it would be simply unsuitable for children. I mean, at the time, it was deemed uh, unsuitable for children in many ways. Oh, I like that uh, military policeman or whatever he is, his outfit. Totally forgotten about that guy. Uh, he looks good. I like his leather jerkin. Um, no, it's not heat... Uh, you can actually see the heat on that. Um, yeah, because this was... Uh, and, and I, I remember um, uh, Robert Holmes in his brilliant essay. Was it in his essay in, in the Doctor Who file or was it on uh, in one of the interviews he did with Doctor Who magazine where uh, he talked about talking to Ronnie Marsh, and who was head of drama, and Ronnie Marsh saying, we had this clot. But when he was being interviewed for the script editor's job, that's right, Robert Holmes' anecdote was, you know, just just going there to sort of dot the I's and cross the T's. And this uh, Ronnie Marsh, head of drama, said, yeah, we had this idiot some years ago who wrote a story with 
killer daffodils and telephone wires got questions asked so don't do that sort of thing and robert holmes you know he does a thing saying i put down some of um uh ronnie's horrible coffee uh <laughs> um and uh, it's weird because Ronnie Marsh was one of those names people thought, oh, some sort of long dead BBC head honcho. But actually, we ended up we ended up interviewing Ronnie Marsh in our in in one of our documentaries. Ed Stradling um, got hold of him, and we went and had a chat and had a lovely time with Ronnie and his wife Judy. His wife Judy was a PA on the Abominable Snowmen. Um, uh, so amazing that those sort of names that you thought were so unreachable. Uh, yeah, ended up going have a lovely time in their flat. I had to shoot off for a gig, so I didn't do the whole interview, but uh, I got to spend some time. And the coffee was very nice, but it was it was BBC coffee and the Holmes anecdote. Uh, now, I, I think Sergeant Benton wasn't in it last week, was he? I, I knew, I thought maybe he was just in one scene in episode three. Or was he? Was he actually not in it? I can't remember. It doesn't matter. You've seen it. Um Now they look very good in their outdoor, outdoor fatigues. Uh, much, much, that's much better than the sort of beigey, slightly more formal battle dress uh, of 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 yesteryear. Uh, this this is a really good look. Down and dirty, uh, but um, yeah, you have your cake and eat it there, Doctor. I don't like the military; they blow things up. Brigadier, kindly blow this thing up. <laughs> I'm the doctor. I don't kill people. Brigadier, kindly kill this person. <laughs> uh, it's it, it's a brilliant storytelling device. It's a brilliant way of the... And, uh, and it works here because of this sort of bristling mutual respect relationship they had. I, I, you know, I don't know if we're supposed to find David Tennant's doctor... Um, a hypocrite in in the Sontaran strategy. The amount of times he tells Colonel Mace off for having guns and for doing military things, you go, yeah, but you're gonna let you you need them to do it. So you could you could be you could be at least a bit sort of uh, you, you 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 know you you, you I think it's it's nothing wrong with the way that D David Tennant's playing it. I think it's it's the way that it's it's played within the story. I don't think it. Uh, I think it makes it may be deliberate. Maybe deliberate to highlight the Doctor's hypocrisy. Um, but here I think it's, I, I, I think we can live with it without judging anybody. I just think the balance is right, is, is right here, uh, in this, in this whole era, really. Um, you know, I, I like the moral, the moral stands the doctor makes. I like the morality of the era of, of the producer who is, you know, um, conscious of ecology and, uh, 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 and and is you know very much a, a a liberal who's against pollution who's 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 about trying to do understanding between races and things like that and and yet it's the era that's where where you're working with a military force but you know there's a there's a there's an undercurrent there of saying yeah well you know to to actually stand for the things that you believe in even if they're good and peaceful and decent uh, you know, you might need to back those up with military force. And that, you know, that's complicated for us. But, but you know, the human race is always blowing things up for what it thinks is is a good reason. Uh, it, it just depends whether you're the blower or the blowee, <laughs> whether you like it or not. 
the spray of death this was originally called uh, and of course um, that's the first bit of spraying that's uh, that's happened but what an ingenious now i imagined it just to be a little sort of film a little it's it's a, it's a bit more of a thing but it's an ingenious uh way of dispatching a human cut off there that, i mean that's that, i mean that's a wonderful idea and it's so macabre and that idea and i didn't know of the dying breath and i had to sort of think about that and then went, well you know when you see people die on telly they sort of go huh. so of course you could get rid of the last thing that's in your lungs and of course that dissolves it so takes away the evidence what a glorious grotesque macabre inventive mind robert holmes has uh there's uh unit on a on a on a uh, on a knoll uh, in the studio looking at a coach on film uh, and that's just the sort of thing we have to get used to when watching 70s telly this wasn't unique to doctor who um you know it was it was uh, it was it was an aesthetic that you you soon got used to but that's that's i i, I think i think it's the fact that the evidence is then disposed of. That's a nifty effect as well uh, of the of the dissolving the dissolving plastic. Uh, beautiful. So just a series of corpses by daffodils, no evidence, uh, and it's an escalation of the master's uh, plans. Is this the first time? This is the first time they meet. Yes. Uh, well, what a moment and what a pair they are. Uh, I wonder who the master's other opponents are. I wonder if there are less, less influential time travellers that he goes and, you know, lays traps for or, or when he just kills them first go. Oh. Um, and again, this, I, you, I can see what critics of this era sort of say, well, you know, this, this cosy relationship between the two, but... And, and and the the last line was changed of the episode. He was supposed to say something like, the master's, you know, I'll be fighting the master until I kill him or he kills me. And it was Ronnie Marsh that said, that's that's a bit too on the nose. So instead he says, uh, in fact, I'm rather looking forward to it. Which, of course, you go, well, you're looking forward to an encounter with someone whose presence is going to cause the death of many innocent people and whose aim is to destroy the world and kill everybody on it. Um, and... Uh, yet these stories are, 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 you know, are made by a generation of people who, for, for whom wartime was, uh, you know, a not too distant memory, for whom war stories were were common and, and war service in, in, in the case of people like Pertwee and Barry Letts and Roger Delgado. And, and often when you read their stories, war was about a lot of boredom. And, and they yearned for action, not because they wanted to die or they wanted to kill anybody, but because it sort of got it over with and because it was it it broke the boredom, which sounds perverse, I'm sure, until you're in the situation where if you're going to have a... It's like waking up from a nightmare or, you know, get, pulling off the plaster. If it's going to happen, it may as well happen now. And then, you know, the sooner it happens, the sooner it's over. And if it's over and I'm still here, the sooner I know I'm not going to die today or whatever. Um so that idea of the sort of adrenaline kick of a, of a, of an encounter with a mortal enemy may seem a little uh, cosily 
boy's own uh, in its approach, but actually I think was more, I think something you could more psychologically buy into uh, if you were from the early 1970s than perhaps uh, me as a, as a, as a, somebody that was born in 74 so so a bit later um so yes rex farrell's finally got his conscience but uh oh bessie looks bessie looks great um i've never quite figured out no nobody's why wheels look like they're going backwards when they're going forwards on telly i'm sure somebody scientific will tell me uh, in fact don't i'm 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 happy I'm happy to live with the mystery, and I probably wouldn't understand what you said anyway. Oh yeah, duh. so, uh, and of course, that's that. The, the brigadier's solution is to blow things up. Uh, but he's not gonna. This is this is actually tense. Now it's very all the close-ups. Have they aborted in time? Uh, the stock footage arrives and goes overhead, and that was all done with the simplest of means. But that, and I love the the lighting in the. The coach and those close-ups were great. That was that was a good moment. That was a really effective moment. I mean, you kind of know that, yeah, the bombs aren't going to drop, but they they wrung all the the tensants out that they could have done. Uh, and they're sort of filming everybody from below. It's hard to hard to film in a coach. I like the master's grudging respect for Farrell finally developing a backbone and standing up to him. Um, Although it is a slightly odd characterization with him because he was so sort of sarky at the death of McDermott and then snivelling and then it's uh, I mean Michael Wish is very good but uh, I don't think Rex Farrell's going to be high in in anyone's sort of most memorable guest character list which is a shame uh, but Michael Wisher will be praised many times in this podcast because he was terrific uh, and. Uh, his Davros is one of the show's finest ever creations and performances. Oh, and Carnival of Monsters, when we get to that. Oh, I will be like a pig in the proverbial uh, Morse code. Morse code with a brake light. That is nicely sort of ingenious Doctor Who-y, you know, showing kids how you can do a clever thing. And uh, uh, yeah, I like I like that. That's a very Doctor Who-y way out of trouble um yeah very good very good um so i guess i'm pleased to say i've enjoyed this more than i expected i i, I, I still don't think it will ever be in my uh you know, list of favorite stories, but, uh, the military stuff's all very good. Um, I would like more autons, but then again, perhaps that's the point. It tantalizes you because if they were just all over it, and this happens with Doctor Who a lot in the seventies, I used to think, well, if they've gone to the expense of making the monster, why can't we see a lot of it? But of course, th this is, this is made for a generation of people for whom things were held back in drama i mean everyone talks about the nigel neal play baby don't they and this this one shot of actually quite an absurd looking thing but because it's built up to and because it's only on for a very short amount of time um uh, everybody that watched it says oh god it was this most incredible thing because their imagination did more than their visualization because their imagination had been working 
for for the majority of the screen time uh, and the visualization for for much less and uh, and actually you know it's a lesson in that we do want everything we always want the money shot but the the the, the build up to it is actually where the the excitement and the the drama lies that was a nice shot of the uh, of the coach in the puddle uh, film cameraman there has gone oh what uh, why don't I do that and you do that uh, we've got a little Ford there in the road. So I'll give you some bumper. Um, I don't know why I made I made the uh, the film cameraman a, a, a Cockney stuntman, but I did. Uh, who was it? John Baker, I think. I don't know what he sounded like. So that was not a rendition of the actual John Baker. Uh, now this is uh, this is the sort of stuff I wanted. Uh, uh, you know, fighting and action. Uh, uh, very good bit of a stunt there Pertwee leaping out or um, and and I think um, that's twice poor old Farrell's been knocked out with a blow to the back of the neck slash back uh, which is a, what I call the mission impossible manoeuvre where you hit, hit somebody between the shoulder blades to knock them out It's too late. Yes, it's. I always think the monsters shouldn't do contractions uh, uh, or abbreviations. I, I don't know why, because saying it is too late is a bit cliched. But, oh, another unit soldier blowing up with smoke. Yeah, I loved all that stuff. Terrible bloodthirsty. Uh, oh, yes, this is cracking. Flying through the air. That's what we want. And the, oh, this was the other anecdote. This was the Richard Franklin anecdote where he's got a bit a, a bit later where he says, I had this close-up where I said that's it so we've got him now uh and uh, apparently the delivery was so bad that he did they 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 didn't use the close-up Roy Scammell uh lovely blonde-haired Roy Scammell who is the fall guy and look at that fall that's a terrific stunt adds nothing to the story just a poor technician walking down the wrong gantry at the wrong time and hurled off and you know that's Barry Letts going right we're gonna set it on earth we're gonna make it look good we're gonna have stunts hardware and all those bits and bobs really uh really do help but this yes so this is where and i remember watching this going on and now we're gonna see you know oh it's, hopefully they'll have learned to make it better than the monster in spearhead from space thought i uh how will how will they do it oh it's a blob of paint <laughs> it's but again it's it's making you use your imagination uh but uh, but but my my imagination had been helped along by the target novel, which very much got the money shot splattered in front of the page in uh, in, in 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 pen and ink. Uh, look at that, brilliant! Uh, and this is a oh, I've forgotten about that one as well. There's lots of is that Alan Chun's there? I think it was. Uh, loads of unit soldiers getting killed. How delightful! This is this is the stuff. Death and destruction. Um, but the fact it's being dispensed by, you know, grotesque carnival masks in uh, in yellow blazers uh, gives it again a macabre juxtaposition uh, of of the sort of the jolly and the destructive. Uh, I mean, you could have rung the master at any point, doctor, and gone. You know that they're not they're not gonna. You know the nestines aren't gonna. It's 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 quite a, it's almost like this is about introducing the master and and the doctor and that the auton threat uh, 
is is sort of less important um and you know he he, he you, you know all it takes is for the doctor to go they're not gonna you know they're not gonna think much of you master and the master goes i think you're right doctor um but I guess it's a bit like the anti-plastic in Rose. The, st- the story is more concerned with other things, so you go, we can dispense with that. I th- I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that, but, but, but I think, again, because this was a story that, that's, that has always done very well... Uh, oh, this is the, we've got him now. That's it, so... We've, we've got him now. Apparently, I think that was originally in, in close-up and... and uh, or there was a version of that in close up, and uh, Barry Letts wasn't hugely happy with it. And Richard Franklin told, told a self-deprecating story about uh, that, that his delivery of that line being a bit over the top and not going down well. And the other anecdote for this oh, and that's a great. There's a, that photo of, of Roger Delgado with his hands in the air was used a lot. But there's uh, there's the story Michael Wisher used to tell was that uh, because this is Rex. Spoiler alert: This is Rex Farrell. So. For the for the shot we see, uh, uh, that reveals that it's not the master but Rex Farrell, whose body I think gets run over by, <laughs> by the lorry with the, by the by the coach, which is pretty bad. Uh, because he'd been under the mask for quite a while, his face was completely white, so people people worried that he'd actually died. Although he he wasn't wearing the mask when he was shot. Anyway, it's a nice story. So they actually thought Michael Wisher might have been dead there, and he's dead with his eyes open, which is always. I always think is a uh, is is a grown. I don't know why I think it's some because it it avoids the cliche. Look, Rex Farrell is definitely in the path. Oh no! Well, his body's around there somewhere. I, I sort of think Rex Farrell might get squashed there, which is pretty grim. Um, yeah, I like a death with eyes open. It just goes against what we're used to, so seems somehow more grotesque. And I don't know. Death is part and parcel of Doctor Who stories, isn't it? It's an exciting thing, which is terrible, really, if you think about what it is we're saying. <laughs> or perhaps I'm just uh, opening a window into my psyche. Um, you, Toby, obsessed with death with all your obituaries and uh, and f- Facebook posts uh, about the latest character actor, Cull from the Grim Reaper, with his uh, copy of Who's Who on television, 1970, and... So that he's scything through. Uh, I'm rather looking for... Oh, gosh, it ends, so it ends actually very quickly. That's a very short coda. Uh, the story, you know, the, yeah, the, you always think of the wind-down as being a bit a bit more laboured than that, but that was very, very quick right to the end. Um, well, look, I... Yeah, I still think that story has shortcomings. I think I was saying I interrupted myself. I, th- I think because this has been... This is a story that is sort of designated... a a classic and or, or certainly was was when I was growing up and uh and one of the best poetries I don't think it is one of the best poetries but uh I've certainly found plenty to accentuate the positive Oz and, and I also think that perhaps some of my um reticence about it is is the gap between what I expected and what it was and actually what it is 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 not a compromise it is what it means to be so it cannot be blamed for uh, anything I might have imposed upon it before I had seen it, so in a way, perhaps, perhaps any anything that uh, that uh, where it falls short for me is 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 actually my fault and not its. Uh, and I found that I found so much to recommend in that. I would happily sit and watch that and enjoy it. I think doing this uh, 
has made me actually want to go back and watch it and shut up and uh, and enjoy it and things like the 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 banter with Rossini and and little bits where I thought the scenes of people sitting around talking uh were a were a bit much were actually much more entertaining I think if I yeah if I see it as a sort of Robert Holmes uh story um I might you know and the, and the things that he he, he 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 you know that became more of his trademark as he went on I think I might I might receive it better. So I have to choose a thing from episode four and an overall thing. So the thing from episode four that I'm going to choose is... Um, is... Uh, I, 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 I think... If not just the unit battle, but the, 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 the look of the Autons, the fact that the Autons are these sort of carnival-masked um psychopathic alien yellow coats so uh, i'll put alien yellow coats <laughs> um and 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 you know and the fact that they're they're fighting you know recognizable soldiers in military fatigues that juxtaposition i think is very nice so episode four alien yellow coats but my but but episode four has reminded me of what I think is is you know the standout thing that that covers the whole story. But it certainly comes into its own in episode four, which uh, I think uh, and I covered it when I talked in detail. I think uh, about the ingenuity of the plastic over the mouth and nose, and then the 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 disintegration of it with the dying breath. Um, uh, I'm going to call that inventive death dispensing. <laughs> Why not? Well, I've written it now. I'm committed. So, but, you know, the, the fact that we have the chair and the troll doll and the, oh, and even, actually, I've just seen it on the DVD menu, the, the shrinking, which I know becomes a master trademark throughout, but seen here for the first time. But uh, but particular, I think, as evident, as as, as demonstrated by the plastic over the mouth that disappears the inventive death dispensing because it's also it shows us a sort of morbid sense of humor which uh which is sort of good fun but also a really guilty pleasure when you when you start to think about what it is you find fun about it and and i quite like the fact that it plays with you like that is that I'm, I'm not sure i'm comfortable with the idea that you, you know inventive death is something that that piques my interest um but but it's escapist drama and you're allowed to press certain buttons when you're doing escapism that you perhaps don't in real life and it and it's a it's an outlet so perhaps yes perhaps i'd be planning inventive death for people if i didn't get to scratch that itch watching doctor who so in a way we're all safer um let's see what richard marson has chosen in the future so and we get to the final episode and the bonus. Um, how big a part does Doctor Who play in your life now, Richard? Um, Doctor Who, for me, in this year, it's quite been interesting because obviously it's been a very challenging year for everybody. For me, now, it's very much a, a lovely way of accessing a bit of joy when I'm feeling down or when I'm feeling, you know, I, I just know I, there's certain things I can go to and put them on and it will make me feel a bit better, a bit happier. Um, and in a way that's that's wonderfully uncomplicated because I don't 
go away and think, think I want to read all about how it was made or I want to examine it or explore it or debate. I, I actually loathe now any sort of pulling apart of the plot because I just sort of think that's missing. It's not missing the point if that's your thing. And I've done it lots myself in the past. But Terror of the Autons as a story, for instance, does not in any way hold up to logical um, analysis and it's kind of but that's missing the point of what these were they were like you know Saturday uh, cliffhanging serials for for a family to really enjoy for 20 and that's what I want to go back to and so that's what it gives me now and that's what I try to uh, connect to the only downside to that is it means that there are chunks of the program I kind of don't very often revisit because they're not the bits that spoke to me most and then I feel like a bad fan <laughs> and that I should be you know I should be challenging myself and really trying to get something out of um, uh, Paradise Towers which is maybe there that other my, my card mutual friend Chris Chapman who adores it and will wax lyrical about it for hours but I just can't get in there because my experience of it at the time coloured my view of it so badly and you know I, I was so resentful at the time that what I thought was a good script had been so badly interpreted I can't get past it so you see I want to now just go to the the pure joy bringers like Terror of the Autons. Well I remember your review of Paradise Towers in Doctor Who magazine quite an, a, an unprecedented drubbing uh, <laughs> I see it. Um, and, and I just say quickly, shout out to John Nathan Turner, who let us print that wow. because, you know, that was a shift in his, he would, I think he had such a battering himself, but actually it was very interesting that I remember the editor saying, I'll send it through, but I just don't think this is going to get past him. And he let, I think he cut a couple of tiny things, but really that was very, very, you know, good for him. Good for him, absolutely. Well, and look, you've sort of summed up very handily there what this podcast is about, because I sometimes go into social media to escape and just to sort of revel in the thing I like. And I see so many people yelling at each other about it. I'm trying with this. Yeah. One, one of the reasons talking to people like yourself is because it's nice to hear what other people like about Doctor Who. But two, for me to go into a story with my eyes open to like it for what it is rather than perhaps what my younger self would have wanted it to be and it's been really educational actually and in this sort of time of schisms and darkness and locked doors it's i've been really enjoying it and i hope the listeners are too so uh that brings us to episode four and the bonus thing i've chosen actually both of my things are sort of from episode four but one is all encompassing and maybe ties in with something you've already said but we will see that what so what is your thing from episode four and your bonus piece of joy about terror of the autons well i feel like i owe this moment of episode four quite a lot uh, personally professionally it's the uh, revelation of of how the next part of the nestine slash master plot to ruin everything for humanity is using the daffodils and they spit film over the nose and mouth. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to avoid spoilers, in which case I've spectacularly yeah, failed. To do. <laughs> but anyway, um, that moment, years later, decades later, I was working on Blue Peter and we had a, a serial called The Quest, which was essentially a ripoff of Doctor Who with other telefantasy moments in it. And the presenters would all play parts. And we were doing one called Masters of Time. And the villainess was played by Jean Marsh and Peter Purvis cropped up at some point. So there were a lot of nods and references. 
and the scripts came in and there were various issues with some of them and in one episode they all finished on a cliffhanger one of the episodes did not have in my view a convincing uh denouement it didn't have a a, a cliffhanger we could shoot and i remember talking to the director and saying you're not going to be able to achieve this not in the time and the money and even if we had pots of money it's still really complex what had been written and we needed something that would work quite quickly and i remembered terror of the autumn and I said, have a bunch of flowers delivered to this the character's dressing room door. And she takes a little sniff and then <laughs> out comes the plastic all over her nose. And we did the whole thing. I was amazed that no Doctor Who fans picked up on the absolute completely shameless ripoff. But it got us out of a hole and it, and it was actually really quite easy to shoot and very effective and, you know, the Blue Peter audience loved it. So I was really glad and that totally came from Terror of the Autons. So that's my moment from that, that episode. Ah, oh, brilliant. Well, that, that sort of ties in with one of mine. So give me your, your bonus one as well and then I'll give you both of mine because I think there is some sort of cross-fertilisation. So yeah, your final... I I kind of dithered, Toby, about the bonus moment because I sort of thought, mm, really, the bonus moment, I should use this as an eloquent um, tribute to Roger Delgado, who was fantastic and I loved him. But I kind of thought that's a bit entry level, maybe a bit obvious. You know, you take almost, he's so brilliant, you almost take for granted that, that, that's, that he is the man he was. But for me, the image of the carnival masks that go on the Autons is one of the most terrifying, you know, it's one of those things I had nightmares about. And again, was so clever of Robert Holmes that he riffed off all these things. They were giving out uh, plastic flowers in supermarkets in 1970, 71. And there were those carnival masks. They were probably the costume designer thinking, what can I do that's cheap and I can hire easily that have a connection to plastic and blah, blah. But, when I saw them, I, I, I just thought, what new horror, what fresh terror is this? And that image has stayed with me all these years and always will. I suspect if I'm unlucky enough to develop dementia, I will be babbling away in the care home about scary men in carnival masks. and They won't <laughs> know what I'm talking about. But it was a very, very kind of scary image. So, so that's like my bones. Like they play old, they've just, there's a beautiful thing on, on YouTube at the moment where they, uh, they've they showed an old ballerina, haven't they? Or an old classical musician. Uh, uh, they've, they've played some of the music and let's, let's come back to it. So they might play you the Terror of the Auton soundtrack and you'll, <laughs> you'll, you'll point and, at the what a soundtrack. If I heard Deadly Dudley's riffs and synth sounds on that, I would be um, probably quite distressed because <laughs> it, it, it goes so well with the kind of, um, you know, the macabre comic strip stories. It's wonderful stuff. It is. You're right. It's so easy for things like D Dudley Simpson and Roger Delgado. We, as you say, it's sort of we sort of take those for granted, but they definitely are worth saying. Well, look, this is very interesting. Having started Poles Apart, and I've, you know, I've never won this because the chances of me picking the same as somebody else are <laughs> infinitely small. However, my thing for episode four was, uh, I don't know if you can read that, is uh, Alien Yellow Coats, which is the big headed, ah. on, the, blah, blah, which I think it's the, it's, the, it's the contrast between the gaudy jollity out front and the sleek, blank, murderous Autons beneath. Uh, and my bonus thing, which I think ties in with your with your first thing, so I don't know, is um, I 
I, I was making it up as I wrote it, but uh, inventive death dispensing I've put, which ties in with <laughs> particularly, I think, but it's the whole, it's the whole litany of them. It's from, it's the fact that he gradually gets more economical as he goes along. But I think the genius of the, the, the plastic thing that, that exploits our weakness, um, kills us very, very simply, and then hides all the evidence uh, is a sort of ingenious thing that I think as a kid just makes you go, how do they think of this stuff? Um, so actually, Absolutely. I think for the first time, if I haven't won, did I get three out of the five that you did? I certainly think we can call it a score draw, which is as good as I've ever yeah. done, because I normally don't get anything. Well done, Toby. <laughs> which well done, Toby. After such an appalling start where I picked the one thing you didn't like, I feel like, that I, feel like I grew. I went on a journey. Uh, and, we, and, we, okay. and we were finally... You totally did, yeah. <laughs> Well, that's I'm so grateful to you, and that was really interesting. So, so much more interesting to do it where we where we sort of chat to each other. Um, I I would like you to take this opportunity to plug anything you've got to plug, um, or or draw attention to your <laughs> internet presence or anything, uh, uh, your books or anything that you want to plug. Please do. Well, I the only thing I mean I'm I'm in charge of a show for CBBC called Our School which has been running now it's going to its eighth year and it's really interesting to be making that show in the current climate and going back to the kind of point of finding joy wherever you can uh, you can find it sometimes in the way that children react and cope with these situations so it's been amazing to and a privilege you know without being too lovely about it to chart how ordinary kids in an ordinary Yorkshire school in the last year have been dealing with this very changed world and dealing with it in a way that sometimes, you know, just does bring a tear to your eye because they're so fantastic and funny and, and warm. And we're carrying on. We go back to start shooting the next season in January, 22 more episodes for CBBC. And so, you know, it may not be everybody's cup of tea, but I think it's always on iPlayer. So just an episode of our school, that's what I'm very much preoccupied with at the moment. And I think it has a lot of heart and humanity and, and is well worth 20 minutes of your time. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, we will direct them there. And uh, thank you so much for that, Richard. I'm really grateful. No, it was my pleasure. It was lovely to talk to you, Toby. And well done. So with immense gratitude to Richard and also uh, I'd like to acknowledge the fact that his was a name I read in Doctor Who magazine as a kid and then he of course done good because he went on to be a uh, producer of Blue Peter I can recommend his uh, Blue Peter diaries uh, very entertaining uh, but he, I know he was also very helpful uh, on the John Nathan Turner um, documentary that Chris Chapman did and of course Richard wrote that that very good book about John Nathan Turner so Richard's a very important contributor to Doctor Who but when I was a lad he was you know one of the the gatekeepers of the legend and and you know wrote up a lot of those interviews that I alluded to uh, during uh, my commentary there so the fact that he I think I've met him once We've emailed a couple of times about a couple of things he's been very helpful to me with my Quatermass book and if he's got anything he shares it. And he shared it with me, uh, which is not always common in the world of uh, Doctor Who or TV sci-fi writing. Um, uh, I've always found him extremely kind and cooperative. So I'm really glad that he's contributed to this. And this process uh, 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 is, uh, is, is given credibility by his presence on it. So thanks to Richard 
thanks to you for listening. I hope you go away and dream up inventive ways to destroy the human race. If not, uh, just have fun. Uh, and I'll see you on the next one of these. But that was Terror of the Autons, which uh, I've come out of this process enjoying much more than I anticipated when I went into it. And that's the whole blooming point. Don't go changing. Ta-ta. Thank you so much for listening to Happy Times and Places with me, Toby Haydoke, and my special guest, Richard Marson, who you can follow on Twitter at richardmarson2. The music for this podcast was specially composed by Dave Gates, and the artwork was by Dylan Patterson. Thanks to this edition's featured patrons, who are Ruben Herfindahl, Rob Leonard, Stephen Moffat, Richard Straw, Pascal Zierka, Sidney Wilson, John Williams, Rich Wiggins, Kevin West, Peter Ware, Alistair Wallace, Gary Wales, John Turner, Sidney Trote, Paul Taylor Greaves, Adam Stone, Dave Stevens, David Spencer, Richard Smith, Paul Shields, Jim Sangster, Tom Selinski, and Gavin Rymel. If you'd like to join those names and become a patron, please do so at patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. I will also take donations at ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydoke if you'd just like to do the one-off thing. Anything, of course, is welcome, as is any review or positive rating you can give at any podcast outlet of your choice. It all helps, and I'm grateful for any of it. Next week, I'm going to squash your favourite Beatles because I'm taking you all on a chase. <laughs>